Primary Care Knowledge Boost, COVID-19, Episode 6, Shielding. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Primary Care Knowledge Boost. We hope you're all keeping well and looking after yourselves. There have been several issues this week and for the last couple of weeks as well around shielding. Thank you very much to people who've got in touch with us to let us know that they would like this covered as a podcast episode, as we were quite excited to cover it as well, because we have quite a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. So today, Drs. Vera and Meta and Joanna Bircher will be talking to us about their take on the subject, covering the differences between shielding and vulnerable groups and tips on how they've been discussing that with patients. Yeah, and we talk about our thoughts on what primary care have been asked to do in relation to shielding and issues around employment and shielding. We hope you enjoy. Um, So if we start, as always, with uh, introducing yourselves, if you don't mind, for people who've not uh, listened to the previous ones. Hi, I'm Joanna Bircher. I'm a GP in um, Staley Bridge, which is in Tameside and Glossop CCG in Greater Manchester. And I'm the Clinical Director of the Greater Manchester GP Excellence Programme. Hi, and I'm Viren Mehta. I'm a GP in Cheadle in Stockport, Greater Manchester, and I'm a clinical director for our primary care network and for Stockport CCG. Lovely. So uh, why are we talking about this today? I think most GPs in the country have been in some way struggling with the shielding question for the last kind of week to 10 days. There's lots of debate about what various things mean and what we should be doing in different situations. So we thought it would be useful to talk about it in terms of mine and Viren's experience and our understanding of the various rules and not just GPs of course and patients carers relatives have all been puzzled struggling and asking questions so um, we're hoping we may be able to demystify at least some of it today. Um, So I guess a good place to start would be talking about a general outline of the the principles of the shielding guidelines and does one of you want to have a stab at that? One of the things that I found is is that there's lots of different terms being used and both as clinicians and also patients and and the public, it's quite confusing. There's um, self-isolating, social distancing and shielding, and then there's different classes and risks of of groups as well. So in my head, you've got the most vulnerable, what what actually has been called extremely vulnerable on a lot of the national guidance. That's the highest risk category of people for COVID complications. And they're the people in the shielding category. Mm -hmm. You've then got the medium risk, what in the national guidance is called vulnerable. And they're the social distancing cohort. And then there's the rest of us. And I think the difficulty is at the moment, all of us, by and large, should be social distancing. So that I think that's part of the confusion. But I think it's it's helpful to now start thinking of, of high, medium and low risk cohorts, because actually in terms of when you look at the codes on our clinical system, that's what's being used now. So I think when you're thinking about all patients, not just the ones in your shielding category that you're now triaging and dealing with, think about are they high risk, medium risk or low risk of of COVID complications? I think there'll be a few people within each practice who've really got to grips with the lists because it's been a complex area that's involved not only being clear on what NHS England have released, but also looking at the various um, society guidelines Mm -hmm. for the different conditions. So as a GP, we're the kind of the holder of the main medical record, and yet we haven't actually received something which is all-encompassing. We still have to go to, I I think I probably had about six or seven different resources open on my um, computer desktop when I was trying to um, validate our list, which obviously took more time. And also sometimes there was some conflicting information on different societies' websites. And so really, I just we just have to do our best with the information that we've got available. Um, How does shielding differ from vulnerable groups? 
Yeah, I guess that's how does high risk differ from medium risk? So I suppose what might be helpful is that so your vulnerable group, because that's where I t- tend to start, is your medium risk category. And the easiest way to think about that is they are all, all your patients who are over 70 years of age and everyone else who would usually have a flu jab. So I think for most of us, that feels quite a comfortable list, I suppose, in that we know who generally those patients should be. So if they're not over 70 and they're not um, usually somebody who'd have a flu jab, by and large, most of those people will be in your low risk category more than likely. And then within that category, there are some people who then fall into the high risk. And that's where the national guidance comes in that does lay out those specific conditions uh, regarding the ones that are in the high risk category. Most of us have spent the last you know, week to 10 days going through a lot of those lists. And I think the first bit of work was identifying those patients who just shouldn't be in that category at all. They're actually low risk, but there's been a spurious code or something that's put them on that list and on the national register. And the the ones that lots of us have come about, for example, is sickle cell traits, it's albinism, it's a funny code that's put them on. I've had a few patients who've had a kind of heart murmur in childhood Mm. and then not had any of the problems. And then they're currently pregnant. So they fall into the pregnant with a congenital heart disease Ah. on the national register. But actually, when you look, there's no problems there. So the first piece of work is to look at that list. The second question I've been asked is, what do you then do with them? So, you know, certainly in my practice, we've been calling the majority of those, having a discussion, and most of them are delighted that they're not on the um, the high risk category and quite happy to go back into into society. So for the people who, who are on the high risk shielding group, have you got any tips about how to tell people that they're on the high risk group and how to explain it to them? So the people who are already on the list will have got the the national guidance. And I suppose a lot of practices would have had patients contacting us to, to question that probably over the past few weeks as people have got letters. If you come across someone who you feel needs to be added to the list, either through sort of searches that you're doing or or just by, by chance, what I've been doing is having a conversation and saying, look, have you had a letter already from the Department of Health? And if you haven't, just having a discussion about, well, actually, you should be social distancing at the moment anyway, but actually you've got a few conditions here that might put you at higher risk. Um, one area that we've done that with is people on the GSF register. So mm-hmm. we've gone through our GSF register and had to think about actually, um, you know, are there other risk factors there? The other thing I've found is there's quite a lot of people that don't meet the criteria for just one condition, but actually if they've got asthma, quite severe diabetes and quite severe coronary heart disease probably when you put all that together i think us using our judgment or if they if they if they've got a very high efi score for example you may well feel that this is a patient who um who should be in the shielding category and the advice nationally is use your discretion you know if you feel that this is someone who's who's high risk by all means put the code on their notes mm-hmm. um and send them the le- the letter um and that's got most of the information that they need what we've now been told is that every Tuesday there'll be a national extraction done um, from your GP clinical system. So in terms of adding people onto high risk and taking them off, that's an ongoing piece of work. And every Tuesday, effectively, the national register will be updated. Okay. And remind us, what's EFI? Uh, So EFI is the e-frailty index. So again, different practices will have different ways of thinking about clinical frailty. Um, So yeah, whatever sort of tools you're using. Um, I've had some people asking about should every care home resident be um, shielding? Mm. And on one hand, you could argue, well, they probably are anyway, to some extent in that they're very rarely leaving the home at the moment. 
But um, regardless of setting, you know, shielding is a clinical decision. So use that same prioritisation of clinical need when it comes to adding people um, into that register. I think it's nice to know that we have the discretion, like you said, to be able to do that ourselves um, if we think somebody is at risk. And I think Joanna said as well, using all the all the guidelines and coming to the clinical decision ourselves because there is conflicting information out there. So you just kind of have to do your best with what information you're being given. And I think um, the other thing I find really helpful is, um, we've said it a few times on these podcasts, phone a friend. Yeah. So um, the one, one of the areas that I found quite difficult was the haematological cancers, because on the, on the national letter, there wasn't really much information about kind of resources. There wasn't a, a kind of national guidance really for regarding haematological type stuff. So I actually called up one of our haematologists and talked through a, a few patients with him. Um, oh. And it was really, really helpful just to get that second opinion. And then he sent me a few links of kind of there was individual guidance for leukemia and lymphoma. And he kind of said, look, I'm not expecting GPs to go through all that, but just give me a call if you want to discuss anything. What was really interesting, every consultant I've phoned has kind of been the same as us, you know, quite uncertain. You know, it's not a a sort of fixed piece of work. It really is about using clinical judgment. And as with everything, clinical judgment of two heads is always better than one. Yeah, brilliant. So, you know, when you're talking about going through the list, is this the identified shielding list that you're going through in your practice to see are these real? Or are you um, are you talking about now going through the rest of your patient cohort? There's sort of three phases, isn't there? So the first phase is the people on the centralised list and going through those and again, validating that they are indeed high risk. Mm-hmm. And then there's the second list. And that's people who've self-identified through the cabinet office as them feeling they should be on the shielding list, but not yet having received a letter. And then there's the third task of people that currently aren't on the shielding list that you feel might be. And I think it's it's each practice coming up with their own way of doing that. So whether that's you're looking at your GSF list, as I said, your frailty list, mm-hmm. looking through your care home patients. We've also done a search of people that we visit very frequently um, and our high risk, our high attenders, and just looking at those to say, actually, should is there anything there? Um, and as I said, quite often it's not that they've got one particular diagnosis. They may have a series of diagnoses that, when you put them together, you feel clinically might put them at high risk. Gotcha. Yeah. So the people who self-identified by going on the cabinet office website, they haven't automatically got that co-put onto their records like the first cohort did, which is in a high risk category of complications from COVID-19 I think the first list we needed to validate had that code automatically put on so if we found an error we needed to change that code to either the moderate or the low risk code and not to just delete it and they actually asked us to specifically swap it I assume that's a way of demonstrating that it has gone through a clinical brain yeah. rather than that someone else has just deleted it. That this second group that Viren mentioned that have self-identified don't have those codes on. So we will need to look at those. And NHS England is estimating that in an average size practice, it will only be about 20 people to go through. Okay. The third group I think is interesting. We found that were very few people with asthma on the initial list and severe asthma is considered to be a shielding condition provided that they are on both high dose steroid inhaler plus some other 
medication to control their asthma. And that's been an interesting task for our team to try and set up some kind of search. It requires quite a lot of manually looking through what doses of steroid inhaler people are taking. So that is actually, I think, quite time consuming. One of the challenges we face is that because we we don't really know about this infection, you know, really categorically who 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 is at the highest risk or not, that we feel a little bit like we're kind of making it up. But I think you, we just do our best in the circumstances. Exactly. Um, what if, um, just as a, an additional question there, you find people who um, have been put in error on the higher risk group, what have you been doing about them? Um, what we did in our practice, I think we had about between 25 and 30, our list size is 8,000. So we just, uh, practice manager divided the names amongst us and we rang them. Um, and actually we're, we're really delighted with the conversations because invariably people were really pleased because they were very puzzled as to why they were in that group. They thought maybe we knew something about them they didn't know. So, um, clearly they were, they were appropriately socially distancing anyway. We didn't have anybody who was upset to not be in that shielding group and, and trying to make sense of how the data had happened. Most people, the conversation surrounded that really. So some people kind of had guessed already because they maybe used to be on a disease modifying drug from a hospital specialty, which they had since discontinued. So that was clear to them. The albinism codes that had gone on some people's records who clearly weren't albino was a bit puzzle to all of us. And I had somebody who was coded as having had a transplant because they'd had a corneal graft not uh, not a solid organ okay. transplant, which are the people in the group. And so once we'd uncovered that, and I said, it says here you've had a transplant. And she said, oh, could it have been my corneas? So sometimes it's about getting a shared understanding. <laughs> and, you know, they're just pleased. Brilliant. Um, thinking about then our cohort of shielded patients that have been correctly identified, um, what additional support is available for them, do you know, and, and how can practices access that? So I think there's different tiers of support. So nationally, um, a lot of people would have heard about the um, the Good Samaritan sort of NHS volunteers app and and sort of movement. So um, I believe they've had a three quarters of a million um, volunteers now that, that have contacted to register. That's amazing. You know, when you think about that movement, and I think they've been so overwhelmed that they've actually paused new registrations for those volunteers. So at the moment, they're thinking about how they deploy those volunteers kind of to support us, not just shielded patients, but, but the entire sort of requirement of how we manage COVID. But clearly one big area of support is the shielded patients. So now clinicians, practices, um, social prescribers can contact the, that organisation and arrange for support for their specific patients who need it. Um, I know quite a lot of areas are also doing something locally. So our CCG and our council are working together to create a team of, of people who are going to be contacting or there to support our shielded patients. I think one thing that's really important is to think about that proactive contact of these people who we know by the very nature are both medically um, sort of vulnerable, but also quite often lots of them may live alone and have very little contact now with people who normally would have visited them. Yeah. So we've been thinking as a practice about how we proactively contact some of these people. So actually, we found that we're doing far less blood tests than we were. So we've actually ring-fenced some time for our HCAs who've been given our vulnerable list and they're ringing around and just trying to contact people. I think also think about vulnerability outside shielding. So we've done a bit of a list of people that have got a history of mental health problems, for example, and depression, anxiety. So they don't fall within the clinical shielded vulnerable category, but 
I suppose we see that it's a different type of vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and again, social isolation for, for those particular cohorts might be really difficult. So again, that's just a bit of a phone call, a bit of a proactive contact. And people have found, found it really, really helpful so far. We had an inquiry this week from someone who was in a vulnerable group but not shielded, who was asking, he was challenging it and, and wanted to be in the shielded group because the local supermarket would only give a delivery slot to people who were in that shielded group. Some, I mean, if you're shielded you and you have nobody to help you with things like shopping, you are actually eligible to receiving deliveries of food parcels, which people in a vulnerable group but not shielded wouldn't be eligible for. Yeah. So, um, but what that um, chap who who made the inquiry was unaware of was all the stuff that Viren has said that actually local responses are far more flexible than just relying on whether somebody's shielded or not. So, in our um, locality in Thameside and Glossop, um, a whole cohort of people, including people with mental health problems or frail, vulnerable, for all sorts of reasons, are rag rated in terms of what kind of social support they have, who's around to do things like shopping for them, and then if if they need somebody to do the shopping for them then they can get one of the volunteers that are being coordinated locally so it's it's not all about whether you're shielded or not and I think helping both practices and and our patients to to understand that they can still get help and support just because they've not got the letter yeah who's rag rating people well, I think every different locality's got their own structure. Our um, local authority has put the categories together with the um, CCG. Just like Viren said, our staff, so our HCAs and our um, admin staff, as our routine GP work is quieter, they've been phoning people and just asking them. And those conversations reaching out to people so they feel cared about by their local surgery, I think that's really, and um, does reap dividends. I think the other thing is, you know, regarding management of, of shielded patients is think about those um, sort of extended PCN staff. So when you're going through your identifying people who might be at risk of shielding, your network pharmacist, if you've got one, might be really helpful um, when we're thinking about, for, for example, some of those asthmatics on, on, on high dose inhalers or people on high dose steroids. But actually a social prescriber um, might be really, really helpful here. So make sure that you've got good links with them. Um, and in lots of areas, I know the social prescribing team are almost coming together to form part of that response. But, you know, if that's not happening in your area, um, just get in touch with your, your local social prescribing network. Um, the other thing is if uh, I know lots of practices will have links to their local community and voluntary sector. Again, just think about that as a resource. You know, lots of groups are just really looking for ways to support the community uh, where they live and work. And we happen to have a, a group of practice champions who are our volunteers who work for our practice. And they're almost our link into the community now. And they're coming back to us with, you know, have you thought about, for example, children who might be vulnerable? And it's made us think about our safeguarding register and the fact that lots of these children might not currently be going into school. So who's keeping an eye on on some of our most vulnerable children? Who's thinking about have they had three meals today? Yeah. So I think as we start to think about vulnerability and our role as general practice in supporting um, our patient population, there there is more to it than just shielding. Um, and it would be useful as a practice team for you to sit down and think about some of those quote cohorts and how you might um, how you might deal with them. Um, how do you think practices should offer care for shielded patients in terms of if they need to be seen or if they've got issues? We've got some guidance nationally on this in the standard operating um, procedures, which says trying to do this as safely as possible for shielded patients and consider 
um, home visits. Um, I think obviously every practice is different in what capacity it has to offer that service. Um, within our practice, we have found we do have capacity for our HCAs to visit people to do their disease modifying and monitoring if they're in a shielded group, but as safely as possible, they're doing it on the doorstep. Fortunately, we've had quite good weather mm-hmm. over the last couple of weeks, so there's been no um, having to do it in the rain. But um, But there's a lot of kind of flexibility around with the dropping of a lot of routine care. Um, it's not mandated that that needs to be on a home visit in the standard operating procedure nationally. And mm-hmm. um, so looking at how you could make sure if people were coming into the practice to have, say, high risk drug monitoring, that they should do it in a safer way as possible in terms of distancing within the practice. Some people are actually going out and taking blood from people while they're still sitting in their cars with their arm out the window. So there's been some flexibility in approaches, but just think minimum contact and safely as possible. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that. So I think, you know, that I've had quite a few queries from, from practices who've kind of read the guidance and assumed that everyone in the shielding category needs to be visited for everything. And I think it's really clear that the guidance doesn't say that. It's asking you to consider the lowest risk possible that you can you can do that with. So for, for instance, um, we, we were looking at people who are on warfarin and need INRs. And in our area, our local hospital who do the, the monitoring normally have shut most of the clinics down and instead set up a drive-through INR service. From their car, they stick their fin- finger out the window, get a finger prick done and, um, and then a dose for warfarin. And actually, that's even though they're going out of the house, that's probably much lower risk than somebody going into their house even with PPE, to do a a proper full blood test. So don't just assume that a home visit is actually lower risk for that person because at the end of the day, you are if you're going into their house, you're exposing not just them but also anyone else in that house to, to risk. So, you know, just have a think about for each type of activity that you do, the way in which you can keep it as low risk as possible. And I think another simple low risk way is if you are bringing people down to the practice, just think about how you can do it so that there aren't lots of other people in the practice at that time where that high risk patient's coming down. So actually, you know, thinking about the length of your appointments and how many, how much you've got going on at once. Can you think about entrances and exits into your building? Um, and also if you, um, if you're in an area, for example, where you've, where practices are expecting to look at COVID patients, then think about how you keep your COVID patients and your shielded patients very separate from each other. Gotcha. Um, just one of the questions that came through to us from listeners was about what to do if secondary care have shielded somebody who doesn't exactly meet the national criteria. Um, do you have any advice about what you've been doing in that situation? I've, I've spoken to quite a few secondary care clinicians regarding various various patients. And I think in reality, they are struggling with this just as much as we are in terms of how do you categorize people people don't as we know patients don't fit into nice neat boxes and i think quite often they are struggling with quite whether somebody does fit into the guidance or not so i think the easiest thing to do sometimes is to drop an email to that consultant or or have a conversation with them um and there might there may be some very good reasons that that they've decided to put them into the guidance and actually a joint decision on that basis is always better yeah. however we also know that everyone's really busy and you know having the time to pick up the phone is not always practical either mm. i suppose one way of looking at it is is if somebody is shielding and perhaps they they don't necessarily need to that's probably better than the other way around and somebody not shielding when they should be. Um, so 
that's certainly the approach that we've taken. I think the ones where I think it's really worth having a conversation. So what generally, if you're talking about somebody who's over the age of 70, actually you're talking about are they in the high category or the moderate risk category? And to be honest, both of those categories should be social distancing and staying at home as much as possible anyway. I think the ones where it's really worth giving a bit of thought is those younger patients who actually the, the question is, are they in a high category or a low category? Because actually once we, we're out of this lockdown, the question is, can these people go back to work and start to go back into society or not? Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. I would struggle, I think, with challenging a consultant's decision related to shielding um, because I'd want that patient's best interest at heart. But if that patient perhaps is being told to shield when they don't, then it may not be in their best interest later. So, yeah, they, I'd agree they're the tricky ones, which I guess takes us to that thorny issue about employment. Yeah. And everyone, I'm sure, will be aware that the shielding letter is counts as a um, sick note. So if someone's received a shielding letter and they're in employment, they can show that letter to their um, employer and then they they're aware that they can't leave the house and therefore unless they can work from home can't work however much much more difficult are those who are in moderate risk groups but still in work Um, and of course some work is riskier than others and the greatest challenge we've had are those people who are working in a people face-to-face contact in the health or care sector who have um, long-term conditions that would put them in that group that would normally receive a flu jab and we, I personally wouldn't want to be working in that situation. And our staff who are in that situation, we don't have them doing any face-to-face patient contact. And we have a lot of sympathy and there's debate about how best to handle those, that group. The ideal is that the employer takes their advice from Public Health England and the DWP website guidance for employers, which is quite clear that if somebody's in that group, they should be only working if they can appropriately socially distance but um, all I can feel is for some employers is they struggle with knowing how to get proof of that to ensure equity between um, employees, because some people think that they're more vulnerable than they really are and therefore may um, feel like they shouldn't be in work when perhaps they should. And, and, and so this is where some practices are, are being imaginative around what information or what um what to give patients to prove to their employer that they're at least in that group and can only work if they if they socially distance. So one of the things I've been saying to people who've been um, asking questions of me is remember to stay within your clinical competence. So GPs are not occupational health clinicians. And unless you've had training in occupational health, don't be forced into making that you need to be making decisions around whether somebody's fit to work or not. I see our job as GPs as providing people with the information about their health to allow their occupational health clinician or their their employer to make a decision about their suitability to work. So the shielding letter really is that proof that that they have one of these high risk categories. For those people who are in the social distancing, moderate risk category, so these are the people who who usually get a flu jab or are over 70, for those people, it's not our role, and and the national guidance is clear, is that we don't need to be giving them a sick note and we don't need to be necessarily doing a letter for employers. What I've been finding quite helpful is, so we we use a system called Accurix for texting, um, and we've set up a standard template that says you're in the, the... Um, moderate risk cohort because of X and we just tend to type the diagnosis in 
Here's a link to the national guidance on social distancing. And here's a link to guidance for employers. And then they've been showing that to their employer. And because it comes with our practice sort of in the logo, in the text, that's been that's been acceptable for most people. So um, what are your take home learning points from today's episode? Um, I think that um, the rules around shielding are complicated because um, the human beings are complicated and, um, and how our bodies work are. Plus, we don't know everything that we need to know about the infection. So I don't think that's anybody's fault. And we need to do the best that we can to protect our most vulnerable people. Um, and no one's going to beat you up if you perhaps shield someone that's not strictly speaking in the category. Um, And another, I think, important take-home message is that um, people are vulnerable for all sorts of reasons and we need to be a bit flexible in terms of how we um, offer support for people. Brilliant. Lovely. And Viren, what are your take-home points? Think about the sort of language and definition, I suppose. So, you know, there's been lots of different terms banded about over the past few weeks. I personally find high, moderate and low risk the easiest ones to, to sort of get in my head. So high risk is what previously was called extremely vulnerable and is the shielding category. Moderate risk is what was previously called the vulnerable and is the social distancing category. And everyone else is is low risk. And I think that's probably the most, for for me, that's been the key concept to get in my head. Um, And obviously now that we're using the codes of high, moderate and low, that makes it much easier for us to, to, to quantify. And I think as, as Joanna said, it's think about vulnerability, I suppose, and what proactively we can do as a practice and as a system. So think about yourself as not just, you know, an island, I suppose. So as a system, how are we making sure that those people who are vulnerable for various different reasons are able to get the support that they need? Great. Lovely. Oh, thanks very much again for speaking to us, um, guys. No worries. Thank you. And uh, we've really enjoyed it and uh, looking forward to the next one. Yeah, take care. Stay safe, everyone. So again, just a really interesting episode, I think, Sarah, about a topic that a lot of people have been having a lot of questions about this week. Um, What did you take away from it? Yeah, I um, like Viren said in his take home point, sort of if you think of it with the terms and use the terms high, medium, low risk group, that is going to translate to people so much better. For me, well, I think the um, the idea of proactively contacting the shielded group um, is really lovely and a great use of people's time at the minute as as we have time that might change in the next few weeks because we don't know what's going to happen mm. um but i do think it'll um be really appreciated by patients and it is a good way of getting in touch with people who might not reach out themselves yeah i think going through the phases like the first phase sec- second phase and third phase uh, was really yeah. useful to understand what's expected when yeah definitely and i think the the other final bits that i took away was um the fact that it doesn't just have to be shielded people who can get help from the volunteers and and things and mm. um, so we, we can communicate that with patients that um even if you're in the vulnerable or moderate risk group um you can still get help um and also the uh, the ways in which to to help people who are having issues with employment in that moderate risk group who don't really have evidence to give their employers Viren's idea of the text messaging um i think was a really great idea that uh, that other practices can easily pick up and use yeah brilliant so if you've got any questions or want to get in touch with us you can find us on twitter at pckb podcast or you can email us on primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com yeah and we've got our um survey as well that's anonymous short and we'll put the link in the episode description if you want to get in contact that way Thank you to everyone. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey 
Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.